Hey everybody, welcome back. I'm Larry Wilmore. This is Larry Wilmore, Black on the Air. Nice to see you, or hear you, or for you to hear me. I'm not sure what the relationship is here, to be honest with you. Hope everybody's doing well. I can't believe it's, man, it's February already. January just flew by. Um, So much happening. The next couple of podcasts, just want to let you know, are live events, which I really love doing a lot. So I'll just do a quick weigh-in, because this one you're about to hear is a um, really nice, lively discussion with David Frum and his book, Trumpocracy. From the right side of the aisle, he's one of those never-Trump guys, and um, I think uh, I think you'll enjoy it. Um, I really love doing this. It's a lot of fun. So I won't spend too much time. Here's I just wanted to say this. Um, I talked to—I was on a Bill Simmons podcast the other day, and I talked a little bit about, um, you know, the whole Michael Wolf book. Well, first of all, Michael Wolf was on Morning Joe this morning, and Morning Joe cracks me up. Yeah, and I've made fun of Morning Joe before. And having having made fun of them, I do watch Morning Joe. I am a fan, you know. But I didn't like it, uh, the way they were kissing Trump's ass so much uh, during the whole primary seasons. I even made a joke about it at the Correspondence Center. Where I said, uh, <laughs> Morning Joe had their uh, head so far up Trump's ass, they bumped into Chris Christie. Thank you very much. And um, I'm sure that endeared me to the morning Joe stuff. But I didn't like the way they were kissing his ass. But then conveniently, you know, when when suddenly he got too close, you know, they turned against Trump, you know, Ugh, whatever. So I have a I kind of I kind of have a love hate love relationship with Morning Joe. I think it is a good show. I really do. But it uh, they drive me crazy a lot of times with um, with <laughs> the way they can just be uh, so aghast at something that they just supported the day before. Michael Wolf was an example this morning. And Mika is the funniest to me because I love, this was so funny, you guys. Michael Wolf comes on, I guess, to talk about uh, maybe his observation with the whole, um, you know, that whole Russian, the memo thing, and Trump, I think, saying, it looked like Trump was uh, guiding this whole thing about uh, the adoption story and all that kind of stuff. So anyhow, he's weighing in on what he saw and observing. And Michael Wolf, he's, he always seems, my spidey sense kind of doesn't allow me to completely believe anything that he says because I don't believe he completely believes anything that he says, you know. He, and he's, So there's a little oiliness coming off of him when he's talking, you know. Not, I'm not slamming Michael Wolf. I'm just saying that's my spidey senses, you know. But um, here's, I, I, I was on Bill Maher uh, the other week when... Uh, Michael Wolf kind of led Bill Maher to believe um, in very direct, in a very direct way, but still not really saying it, that someone currently is having an affair with Trump. And he told everybody to look in his book and you'll figure out who it was. Everyone looked and kind of assumed by looking that it was Nikki Haley seemed to be the suspect. And first of all, this type of thing I don't like at all. It's very tabloidy. If if you really believe that, just say it, you know. But um, if it's not really true and if it's you're making accusations, that's not a good thing to say, especially about Nikki Haley. Come on, man. I mean, it's it's just wrong. And I don't care. Like, to me, it's irrelevant whether I agree with Trump or disagree with him or his administration. You don't make those kind of accusations about somebody like Nikki Haley, you know, with sketchy evidence you know, that's because you're you're really that's character assassination. 
and it's very tabloidy too. It just has a sleazy nature to it. I just didn't like that at all. I also did not like the way CNN kind of reported it at first, too, in one of their breaking news things. You know, I know other outlets did, too, but I think I hold CNN to just, uh, I want CNN to be so much better, you guys, and they always disappoint me because everything is breaking news to them, you know. But when they report things like that Nikki Haley thing, to me, they literally are breaking news. You know, the news is being broken. It's being shattered. It's being broken apart. The whole idea of what news is, you know. I mean, it's just irresponsible to me. So anyhow, back to Morning Joe. So to me, it's like the tea leaves of that has already been out there about how people feel about that accusation, you know. But now Morning Joe takes the stance against it. And it's so great to see Mika <laughs> with her arms kind of crossed while Michael Wolf is talking about this other thing. And you know what's coming, too. You know this whole thing is coming. And then, you know, they call him to the carpet, as they should, about this accusation. And then they kind of kick him off the show. But it's like, you guys knew you were going to do that. Why did you invite him on and you just kick him off like that? It seems so staged, like this... Uh, I don't know. I just didn't buy that too much, you know. But whatever. At least, I, I guess they did the right thing, but it just shows you just the crazy world that we're in, you know, that this very tabloidy book about a tabloidy presidency, you know, is is what the news is today, you know, and not the underlying issues of what's really going on. It's so hard to get to these actual things. I mean, even the whole Nunez memo thing, you know, it's there's so much uh, mystery shrouded in a riddle, wrapped in an enigma, you know, to paraphrase, I think, the Churchill quote or whatever. So anyhow, that's just my quick observation on that. It just <sighs> posing in news just kind of bugs me. And reporting on tabloid things, you know, I just don't like that kind of thing at all, you know. All right, that's it. That's all I got. I don't have much to say about the State of the Union, whatever, blah, 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 Trump, blah, 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 taking credit for shit that he didn't do. Nothing new to me. Same moves, you know. Um, I do—I'll say this, though, real quick. I think uh, the Democrats better really be careful. I, I think this year could be a good year electorally for the Democrats, and I know I've said this, and it doesn't make people happy on the left, but, um, you know, if the economy continues to do well— and if wages start rising and people start feeling in their pocketbooks, it's going to be hard to beat Trump in 2020, you know. <laughs> I'm going to pause to let everybody scream right now. Ah! I know. Sorry. And who wants to bet against that? You don't want to bet against people doing well and doing better, right? So it's kind of a conundrum we're facing here. There you go. Sorry. Sorry to report the bad news. All right. I hope you enjoyed this interview with David Frum. And um, I'll see you on the other side. Very fun, and I'm very excited to have David Frum here with your book, Trumpocracy. How about a nice round of applause for David? I really, really was looking forward to reading your book. Um, ever since uh, last year, I think it was the National Review, had the, all the Never Trumps with all those uh, essays. I don't know if you guys read that, but it was fascinating to me. Like, to me, it was like, that showed me how scared everybody was that Trump was going to be president, you know? And, uh, and now I think yours is probably the first in a wave of this type of, uh, now the answer to some of that, that feeling. Um, I've, to me, it's kind of, it's almost like, uh, 
I was talking to him earlier. I felt like it was like an episode of Quincy, like you're this coroner <laughs> who's telling us how democracy died exactly, you know. And we're saying, we really ate that? Is that what we ate? As we look into the stomach. So tell me, what does uh, Trumpocracy mean? All right. Well, thank you. Thank you all for being here. Larry, thank you for My agreeing pleasure. to do this. I just, Larry Wilmer, is, this is a very un-Washington thing. He agreed to do the book before knowing that he was in the index. Um, <laughs> So that's, that doesn't happen in my, my, in my town. Um, uh, Trumpocracy is a description of the system of, of power of mm -hmm. Donald Trump. I mean, we all, he is the most mesmerizing TV presence of any politician of modern times. And we all are caught up in the drama of his oversized personality. Mm -hmm. But even when you're breaking norms and breaking democracy, you can't run America by yourself. Nobody can do that. Right. You're in a system of power. Uh -huh. um, and that is the thing that the book tries to study. How he is enabled by his party in Congress, by the Republican donor institutions, by Republicans in the country. Uh -huh. Maybe the way to visualize this is um, when you see Donald Trump at Camp David, he had, he had an especially goofy moment at Camp David uh -huh. two weeks ago. And a goofy moment? This is a particularly goofy moment. Right. But over his shoulder, as he was raving, uh -huh. um, were four people on each side of him, yeah. sort of nodding quietly. And the book's about them. Yeah. The people that drink the uh, Kool-Aid. Trump has a, like the orange Kool-Aid that he's serving out to everybody. And the way that they drink it is amazing to me. And even when, you, when I look at what I thought conservatism was before Trump, I have no idea what it is now. Is, what, is he destroying the conservative movement, do you think? Is, he, is it stalling out? Is it changing? What's going on with it? Well, he defeated it. He conquered it. He defeated it. it. He conquered it. Uh -huh. He imposed himself on it. I mean, he begins by breaking Fox News. Uh -huh. Remember, he, he boycotted a Fox debate. He, he forced Megyn Kelly out of Fox News. It be, it's a series of assertions of power. And so... There is a, a view of him that he's a doofus, that he's senile, that he's, he's hapless. Um, in many, for everything that is properly part of the job of the president, mm -hmm. that's true. But for everything that is not properly part of the job of the president, mm -hmm. he is this powerful life force of, of where he bends people, uh -huh. uh, including people who you wouldn't th you think would resist. And so when you say those people, what, what's in it for them? Why do they drink the Kool-Aid? They begin by thinking they can control him and they discover uh -huh. they are wrong. But do you think Trump is some like Machiavellian super genius that somehow has bamboozled everybody or he stumbled his way into this? What is your take on it? How do you see that? Does he have some kind of game plan at work here? So uh, he's not a Machiavellian at all. He's not a planner. Um, he's, not, he's not an orderly he's mind. He's not smart enough to be that evil is what you're saying. No, That's he, what I'm you saying. can be that oh. evil, but you, mm -hmm. you, it, it's by instinct. He mm -hmm. has, um, if you've ever been bullied as a child, I mean, mm -hmm. you know that the bully, whatever his other defects, he's got this instinct for what is the pain point yeah. in any individual human being. And Donald Trump can see that. He right. sees where the pain point is for people, for systems. Mm -hmm. um, he cannot abide any kind of a story. Um, when Michael Flynn collapsed as national security advisor, there stepped into the breach a man named H.R. McMaster. Uh -huh. He's one of the most honored American soldiers of his generation, a veteran of Iraq and Afghanistan, three-star general, much decorated, uh, also a, a considerable intellectual, author of a, an important history of civilian military relations in the v Vietnam War. And 
McMaster, who was in no way a Trumpist, signed up for this job out of a sense of duty. Um, right. and, and he thought he would be able to manage Trump. His first project when he took over the job was to get Donald Trump to say words in defense of NATO. Uh, Trump had, through the campaign, denigrated NATO. He was going to get Trump to say it. They arranged a trip to NATO headquarters in Brussels in April. Uh, they arranged for Trump to give a speech in front of the monument to Article 5, a twisted girder yeah. from the World Trade Center, you know, where the, which had caused all the allies to rally to the United States. And McMaster dictated language to go into a speech that would affirm a commitment. And on the plane over to Brussels, McMaster briefed journalists that Trump would say these things and put all doubts, all doubts to rest. And Trump got to the passage in the speech and skipped the key words, whether because he doesn't like NATO or is beholden to Russia or just doesn't like being told what to do. I don't know the answer to that. But I know what happened next, which is McMaster was put into a position in which was he going to tell the Estonians and the Poles and the Romanians and the British and the Germans and the French and everyone who depends on the United States, um, I wrote in this language where we promised to protect you and the president wouldn't read it. How can he say that? Right. He had to lie. And he said, he, because when the journalist asked him what went wrong, he had to say, I don't know what you're talking about. The president did exactly what we expected him to do. Good people are in Trump's vicinity are compelled to do bad things, often for good reasons, because uh -huh. he takes the American state hostage. Or bad things for bad reasons. There, or there are lots of those people, too. Yeah. I feel like he puts them all in a sunken place. That's <laughs> 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 so what happens. Uh, do you think he did that on purpose, or do you think it was inadvertent? Because, look, Trump's relationship to NATO and those types of things is he's the slumlord. He thinks that America should be the slumlord. <laughs> Of, of the of the world yeah. and his and his uh, his job is to collect the rent while demeaning them. <laughs> yeah. You know, even though their gas is off, their lights are off, it doesn't matter. You know, pay the rent or you're going to get evicted. That's his relationship to the world for the United States. <laughs> right. I, right. Right. He has this power and desire to sure, right? Yeah. Um, I don't spend a lot of time trying to figure out why he does things. <laughs> okay. Because I can't. How can yeah. I? Um, but what I can, I can show you is what he has done uh -huh. and what it means and why other people have gone along with it. Um, and as you say, there, there are bad people who go along for their own yeah. bad reasons. I, one, I, have, I reproduce in the book um, a debate that I had with uh, very a man named Elliot Cohen, a very distinguished historian of American uh, military power. And the question was, should people who care about national security serve in the Trump administration? And so I reproduced some of this stuff, but the, the, the key point at the end said, look, if you are going to be put into a position, inevitably, where the president will ask you to do something wrong, uh -huh. so you must know yourself, am I the kind of person who, when the president of the United States, with all the majesty of the office, asks me to do something wrong, am I confident that I will say no? And then the punchline is, if they were so confident, they wouldn't have asked you. Uh. So that, that worries me. Um, it seems like Trump has a lot of, there's a term microaggression, but I'm going to use it in a different way. I think there's a lot of little cuts that he's doing, a lot of little paper cuts. Some of it is uh, directed at, at the press. Some of it is just directed on truth itself, you yeah. know, where I believe he's slowly lowering the bar and lowering our resistance to even want to check the things he's saying are true. Where after a while, I mean, who knows 
the types of things he'll be able to get away with. And I think people might do those things that he's asking them to do because they won't even know what's true at some right. point. So I, there are a few master ideas that I, I'm trying to advance in the book. And, uh -huh. and one of them is, immediately after Donald Trump was elected, there, were a lot of, there was a lot of, from my point of view, loose talk uh -huh. about comparing this to dictatorial moments. Right the after past. the election? Right after the election. Uh -huh. People were startled. Um, they hadn't seen, I, I hadn't. Uh, I, some people had, but most people did not expect him to win. And so there's a lot of talk about, you know, is this like the spectacular democratic breakdowns uh -huh. of the most horrible times of the past? And one of the ideas I try to argue against in the book is democracy is not on or off. It's a modern light switch, not a primitive one. It has, it has a dial. Um, it, it can go forward, it can go backwards. And you can reduce it without turning it all the way off. I mean, uh -huh. that, and I talk a lot about, in the book about other countries, but also periods in American history, like in the years after Reconstruction, when um, elections didn't vanish, courts didn't vanish. The federal courts, in fact, you know, remained functional and, and quite reliable, but, but people lost the right to participate, and, they lo and the participation lost its meaning, uh -huh. and institutions of the state broke away from popular control. And it's, it's a much more a matter of more and less than yes and no. Yeah, it seems like the dangerous, one of the more dangerous things that Trump is doing is, is it, it feels like he's telling people to don't believe in systems and don't believe in institutions, believe in me. Mm -hmm. Is that fair? Right. That, that's like, why, is that at the heart of Trump hypocrisy? That, that's why the lies are so blatant. Uh -huh. uh, because they're, they're tests. You know, just, just um, this morning, the president tweeted accurately that... Wait, he tweeted this morning? Really? <laughs> <laughs> he tweeted accurately that 46 point something million people had watched his State of the Union address. And right. that was true. And he knew it was true because Fox and Friends reported that. And they're very good on... Well, uh, on and it must be true. Right? Well, they're, they're good on reporting num ratings numbers. That's yeah. very like that. You don't fool around with if that. It, if it wasn't true, they wouldn't be Fox and Friends. <laughs> <you know? laughs> and then he said, this is the biggest State of the Union audience in history. Yeah. And that's really not true. Right. So, and, and, but, but also highly checkable. Highly checkable. Yeah. Uh, so why, why do you tell that lie? Well, yes, there's a psychic need. I mean, uh -huh. he needs to be the biggest and the best. I mean, he lied about how many stories there are in Trump Tower. Yeah. Um, he lies about how <laughs> tall he is. Um, yeah. Like, he does that. But it's also, what he's doing here is every time he tells you there was a huge audience, or I won this landslide victory, uh -huh. that he's setting the foundation so that other people around him who would flinch from a direct line <laughs> can say on television, well, this is what the American people voted for. This is what the country wants. Yeah. You're, you know, if you disagree with him, you are out of touch. That is, they don't repeat the claim that he's got a giant majority behind him, but they take it for granted. And it's false, it's not true. I mean, in fact, you know, if you are a supporter of Donald Trump's, you are, it is you who are out of touch. But, but the stage has been set and the lies serve that purpose, among other purposes. Yeah, I've never seen anything like it. I've, I've, I've joked before where I always felt it was unfair to make an equivalency between Hillary and Trump as liars, because I always say, well, Hillary lies like a politician, but Trump lies like an alcoholic. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he does. Or, or I, I revised it to say he lies like a crackhead. Because <laughs> it is more like a crackhead. Because it's true, because Trump doesn't... Look, a politi politicians lie to gain power, to get votes, to hide something, whatever. Trump just lies, yeah. you know? 
I mean, he just needs the money for the VCR so he can buy his crack. That's really what he needs. And that crack is Trump, is Trump itself, you know, the glorification of his name. You know, anything that, you know, pumps helium into that seems like it's the truth for him. Like, I guarantee you, David, I guarantee you he can pass any lie detector test based on anything he said. Well, in, in the... Do, do you believe me or not? He, his conviction behind his lies are so amazing. I really, I'm talking this way because I really have never seen anything like this, you guys. It really okay. is unbelievable to me. I, I cite in the book um, surveys that were done in the last month of the election where they asked voters to rate the candidates on a variety of scales. Yeah. And the voters didn't like Trump. They, they thought on, on a question, care about people like me, Hillary yeah. would beat him. On a question of you know, temperament to be president, he would lose. Yeah. He won, he consistently in that last month outpolled Hillary on the question, who is more honest and truthful? <laughs> so why? Mm -hmm. Why? Because one of the things you, uh, in politics, if you look, look, you look at a lot of polls, and what you have to understand is people don't always hear the question the way you think you heard the question. Okay. And so you have to, what are they hearing? So why did people find Trump so, people who didn't like him, who thought he didn't have the right temperament to be president, who, mm -hmm. that he didn't care about them. And the answer is because the way Hillary Clinton and normal politicians deal with awkward truth is by equivocating. They know the truth is there, right. and they, they keep a distance from it. Um, and they, yes, say, they, right. they say things that you know, allow them to do, walk through two doorways at the same time. Mm -hmm. So they do that because they have some awareness of truth and respect for it, and they don't want to outright contradict it. But when you hear equivocation, it sounds equivocal. Yeah. Uh, Donald Trump never equivocates. He is always direct. He is always forceful. It may be a total fiction, but it is unequivocal. Donald and Trump actually disagreed with himself once. <laughs> he was calling himself a liar, and then we were the liars for not believing that he had been a liar. Th right. This was when, remember when he, he apologized for the grab him by the... You know, for that comment, right? He apologized for it, and then a year later said, well, that wasn't even my voice. So he lied about him telling the truth, and then it was our lying ears that was the problem. Right. Mm -hmm. And yet people like him because of that. That's what you're telling me. Well, pe people don't like him as much as, like, this is where you get, people don't like him that much, and, and never have. I mean, look, 300. You don't, you don't think he has a, there's a lot of people that actually There are like a lot, him. there are 330 million people mm -hmm. in this country. And so 38% of that is a lot, um, but, is, uh, but, that, so. but it's, it's, the, the secret of his power is it does not rest on vast majority approval. I mean, this is where, this is the, the, the ocracy part of this. This is not like, you're not dealing with a Hugo Chavez figure where, you know, there you are, um, you know, a, someone trying to preserve a liberal democratic system, mm -hmm. and there's this demagogue dictator, but who has somehow formed this connection with the great mass of people in your sure. country. That's not what has happened here, ever. Uh, there's never been a moment we've had a majority behind him. What there are are systems of power mm -hmm. that decisive minorities can use, and that that is enough. And one of the things that also happens, and this is one of the things that is really ominous for the future, is a lot of the legitimation of, of Trump's rule is to, is to say, it, at some level, look, it's true he doesn't have a majority majority exactly, but he has a majority of the proper Americans. Uh -huh. um, and, and that makes him, that gives him a legitimacy. And that is one of the things, and it's been, 
you know, I come from the, I'm a registered Republican, I'm a pretty conservative person, but one of the things that is uh, sort of a wrestle for me uh -huh. in this process is to understand the power of that idea that some Americans are not proper Americans and that their views yeah, are not legitimate. Yeah, that. Um, no, that's ridiculous, especially when they talk about coastal elites and they're not real Americans, but everybody that died in 9-11 was a real American. I think everybody agrees with that. And they're in New York I think there's City. a carve-out for Staten Island. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, that, that doesn't count as being part of the Coastal League. That's okay. <laughs> Great New York joke, Kitty New Yorker. Uh, I was, was interesting about your book. It's, um, it's, very, it's a very thorough account of things that you forget about because the news cycle just grinds them so fast. Stories just replace stories so quickly. And it's nice to go back and remember some of the craziness of the things. And one of the things that struck me, and it's, it's got it when you recall it, how Jeb Bush, you know, was at the top, right? And in the amount of time it takes to like cook microwave popcorn, <laughs> right? Trump was number one. And that's fascinating. What, what is your observation of that? Did you, do you, did you have any sense of that at the time? Or? It was three weeks. I mean, Trump declares in the middle of June and by yeah. the end of the first week of July, he's in first place. And except for a period, there's a short period in November when Ben Carson mm -hmm. uh, overtakes him. <laughs> Black Troop of the Dog is what I call him. <laughs> and, and then that doesn't last. Yeah. And Trump is back in first place, and he's in first place all the way through. Um, look, when, when, when Trump appeared on, as a candidate, uh, one other thing that needs to be said about this, and this is a thing that is forgotten, Trump put a foot toe in the water in 2012. Mm -hmm. And for about a week right. and a half, was the Republican that. front runner in the 2012 cycle on the strength of the birther. But no one right. took him seriously. No one took him right. seriously, but... In retrospect, that was obviously a mistake. Mm -hmm. uh, that he had a connection. I mean, at that time, you know, the Republicans have gone through these things where they cycle through these novelty candidates, the Michelle Bachmans. Everybody gets a turn, <laughs> and so the, what you thought was, well, they go through the novelty candidates, and then they settle on a more on some governor or senator who said what you expect. Mm -hmm. But Trump's success in 2012 was an indicator of what was to come. In 2015, when he first appeared, I have to say, I, my first reaction was, this could be, not him, it never occurred to me that he'd be the nominee, this could be a positive thing, he can shake things up. Mm -hmm. um, because the party was gripped by this very ossified set of ideas, symbolized by Jeb Bush, a person I, re I, I respect enormously as a human being, but he stood for pre-Great Recession Republicanism. Um, and the Great Recession had happened, and... How would you define that, very simply? Um, the, the belief that if you can get enough economic growth by deregulating the economy, that growth will suffice to pay for solutions to all your social That's problems. That's exactly what they're talking about now, so how is it different than now? Uh, well, but it, what happened in the Great Recession, we, we learned first, um, I'm going to say here, this, this may sound like a little apology for my life, but so it is. So, so, so I, apology not in the sense of, I'm sorry, apology in the sense of defense. I graduated from college in 1982. Uh, between 1982 and 2007, we had a quarter century in which there were two short, mild recessions. A quarter century in which there was almost no inflation. And if from the point of view of that quarter century, it was very reasonable to think we cracked the big problems. The people in the New Deal generation had solved the problem of how to fight depressions. The people in the Reagan-Thatcher years had solved the problem of how do you cope with inflation. 
now we had, it was called the great moderation, that we, had, that we were going to have stable, steady economic growth, and thanks to the deregulatory reforms of the Reagan-Thatcher years. We had cracked the problem of how to run a modern economy well, in a steady way. But during and, that time, I think the disparity of income uh, was wider than it ever had been. I mean, true. more money was collected at the top and less money was available in the middle. And many of those manufacturing jobs, that happened during that period as well. That's all true. Right? And, and so, I mean, you could describe the period before it as more of a moderate period, wouldn't you say? Well, the period before, I mean, moderate in that uh, between... Like, in other words, 1987, biggest stock market crash since, since the Great Depression. You know, right after a period yeah. of tax cuts and, and growth, that but had it, not happened since then. But it didn't yes. affect the real economy. That that was the, so that, that 1987 is the test case. You have this horrific stock market crash. But it was crash. after the deregulation of savings and loans. Yeah, but the economy <laughs> continues to grow. There's no recession after. There the, was a recession in the early 90s. Is there's a recession three years later? Right. But stock market crashes. I, I remember. Probably, well, you're too young, but uh, yeah, I remember. It. <laughs> uh, but the stuff, we we were expecting a 19. That was 29. Where's 1930? And 1930 didn't show up. So when I call it the Great Moderation. I just meant that's a period in which, if you look at the chart of what it, it, sure. it it's much more like little ups and downs and big ones. Well, and the United States economy, to be fair, has done this. If you chart it from in the 20th century, it's pretty much a straight line with some dips. So we thought we had solved this problem. So then comes the Great Recession. And suddenly, you're talking about 2008. 2008, okay. and suddenly realize all of these problems that we, I associated with our grandparents and great grandparents, they had not been solved forever. They were just waiting around the corner, uh-huh. and so you had to re, a lot of things had to, it seemed to me had to be rethought, and. Then when you look backwards from that prism. Like what? What do you mean by that? Well, one of, okay, one, one of the big ideas of um, the conservatism of the George W. Bush era, I served in the George W. Bush administration, and I uh, was a supporter of his, was what we could do was Social Security had gotten out of date. And you needed to give people more control over it. You needed to give them some kind of private account. Uh, they, they would have more ownership. Uh, the money would be invested in the stock market. It would grow faster. It would be more stable. And that looked like, a, from the basis, on the basis of the experience of 1982 to 2007, that looked like a very promising idea. From the point of view of 2009, it didn't look so good. Right. Uh, and so you, you, you were reminded why... You know, right. G.K. Chesterton, who's a great... Um, sort of Catholic, conservative, religious thinker, has this wonderful line in one of his essays, never tear down a fence until you know why it was put up in the first place. Uh-huh. And, and so we had to confront why was Social Security there? What was it there to do? Um, but the Republican well, field... And of, Social Security was roundly attacked by conservatives when it first came out and also years later in the 60s when the debate over Medicare happened. For sure. As a socialist takeover of government... This is un-American, it's never going to be the same, and it's still here, and now so, so, <laughs> conservatives but, want to save it. But, but you would hear people like Jeb, Jeb Bush and others talk in 2015, 2016, as if the experience of the past 10 years had not ha- happened. And what that did to them politically was that Bush and Marco Rubio and others would talk about, you know, all hope and growth and opportunity and the uh-huh. best America is yet to come. And meanwhile, the Republican voting base which was increasingly white, increasingly non-college, increasingly non-urban, increasingly in the middle of the country, 
saying, what are you talking about? It's, we do not see hope. What we see is life expectancy is going down. Something that did not happen during the Great Depression in the United States. Uh We see an epidemic of drug addiction um, that that in the three years leading up to the 2016 election killed more people than died, killed more Americans than died in the Vietnam War. We see, um, we don't see hope, and we don't know what you're talking about. You know, Donald Trump, when he gave his um, his first speech, aside, from, you know, the, the the line that didn't get enough attention, everyone remembers the Mexico doesn't send its best. But he said in that speech, the American dream is dead. And what you were always taught in Republican politics is you talk that way and you're finished. America, the American people want happy candidates, they want optimistic candidates, they want Reagan 2.0, the, the, the race, is, this was a rule, the race is always won or the debate is always won by the candidate who projects the most optimism. Donald Trump was the most pessimistic candidate and he saw off the Rubios and the Bushes because mm-hmm. he was connecting to something real. And my reaction to all that was, okay, we need, we need to hear this guy because I thought he was, I saw what he was seeing. And what I thought is if he talks this way, he will shake up the field, force a modernization of Republican ideas, and then some more responsible actor will steal his lines. <laughs> uh, what I didn't count on was that nobody, <laughs> nobody would, that Donald Trump would move into first place yeah. and nobody would adjust at all. See, I see it a little differently. I see <laughs> uh, the, you know, I feel he used a lot of racial resentment and cultural resentment, first from the birther movement, which, you know, that started the energy around his, uh, his uh, campaign, as, as you pointed out as well. But there's a lot of cultural resentment as well, yeah. which is embodied by Obama. But there was no difference from his speech, tone-wise, than Richard Nixon's speech in 1968, when he pretty much lobbied the same accusation of people that were against the Vietnam War. And Make America Great Again is exactly what Ronald Reagan said in 1980. He also said Make America Great Again. So he also came out with the pessimistic view. So these games, he actually has done these same things that have been done before. It's just in a horrible package. Well, I, well look, I, like it's all, it's all put together. The way, it's so blatant. Let me put I, it a different way. Yeah. Nixon, um, say what you want about him, was a trained politician. Yes. You know, a very talented politician, was a statesman, all those types of things. Very intelligent man. Ronald Reagan had so much charisma, was the governor of California, you know, and he actually had a vision for what he wanted to do. He, he was one of the leaders of that new conservative movement. Donald Trump doesn't have an ideology, you know, he really is a narcissistic, sociopathic, like orange blob. <laughs> well, I, I don't want to... That is ama- but is amazingly charismatic, and, but I think he's carrying the message that is, gave him that power. Well, is, I, I don't want to wander that. too far down these byways, but I'm going to say a word here in defense yeah. of Richard Nixon. Because this, ha- uh, this happened a lot. Well, this is where mm-hmm. in his home, well, a little down the road, but mm-hmm. um, this happened a lot. Steve, Steve Bannon used this line. He mm-hmm. said that Donald Trump's campaign uh, convention speech will be based on the Nixon convention speech in 1968. Um, and so I was in the hall for that speech, and I was startled by it, and I mm-hmm. went back and reread the Nixon speech. Yeah. And it's not like that at all. When you, R- Richard Nixon in 1968 at, at the convention was, vi- it was an an almost perfectly balanced speech where, uh, between different themes, nodding to the right and nodding to the left. 
So the, one of the most memorable lines from Richard Nixon's speech, he was talking about the, the, this is the time of ur- rising crime, urban riots, uh, a lot of uh, upheaval just after the, assa- the double assassination of Martin, of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. And Nixon, the, he had, what, he had a, a balanced paragraph in which he said, there, it can be no uh, justice without order uh-huh. and no order without justice. And then there's a paragraph about enforcing order and then there's a paragraph about racial equality. And it's bing, 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 all through the body of that speech. Now maybe you say at other times and in other places there were other subtexts, but when Nixon was in formal mode, unlike Donald Trump, it was not to the left, not to the right, because he was a real politician, and because he knew he was going to be president, and he was gonna to have to actually govern this country. And he had a strong sense, because he belonged to that post-war generation, which the Democrats had been so dominant, that he was the leader of the weaker of the two parties, and therefore needed to be more careful. Yes, but my observation is that Nixon didn't mind riding on the backs of racial resentment and cultural resentment, because both of those were in the air in a very pungent way in 1968. For sure. I mean, but he black people he could... were blamed for, for the riots, even though Martin Luther King, you know, you know, was slain that year. That's why those riots started, you know. Uh, the Watts riots uh, a couple of years earlier, I think after, I think it may have been after Malcolm X was killed. Yeah. You know. but, um, but Nixon thought he could master those forces and use them and ride them. He thought the Democratic Party was falling apart at that time right. too. He I mean, thought he, he would he be in take charge. Advantage of that, right? and, and Trump does not, Trump doesn't, Trump doesn't have that kind of purpose. So, um, you know, what, what, and one of the things that I, I want to emphasize in this book is that I do talk about the non-uniqueness of Trump. I mean, the, the, kind of, uh-huh. the United States political system has been like a man falling down stairs for a while. And a lot of the, you know, and, and you see, like one of the things, I mean, I've been, I'm, I'm, I do have a kind of a pessimistic outlook. I'll, I'll plead guilty for that. And, uh, but, you know, people say, well, you say, you know, you, you, Five years ago, you said things were bad. I said, well, that's true. When you fall down stairs, each yeah. stair is a new low. That doesn't mean they're going to run out of stairs. Yeah. Damn you, gravity. <laughs> How much do you think a good economy <laughs> affects people's acceptance of Trumpocracy? That's a very important question. I, I think that one of the big stories of 2018 mm-hmm. is going to be the president's increasing strength. Yeah, um, I agree with you on that. That he, I know, that I do. His numbers have gone up, actually, his numbers have gone up since December. I mean, they're yeah. still bad, but um, if you, the, the number, what is his net, if you look at his net disapproval, yeah. that is, the people like him minus, uh, the, well, you have to do it the other way around, you get a negative number, he's still got a negative approval rating. I find those numbers irrelevant. But, to me, the electoral numbers are the only numbers that matter. Okay, well, he's, he, <laughs> but he is, getting, he is getting stronger, and what is, at the same time, as his party in Congress mm-hmm. is getting weaker. And so he is becoming more important to the Republican Party as a whole, and they're being put into a position in which many of them have to face this possibility that after November of 2018, he may be the last protector of Republican interests in Washington. Uh-huh. And it will be especially important at that point to defend him. So he's cannibalizing or devouring the party from the inside and replacing it and is making himself the future. Uh-huh. The idea that he's going to go away, I, I, I want to argue against the idea that he's going to go away on his own or collapse of his own Oh, life. that's not going to happen. 
Absolutely. Do people, do you think that's going to happen? <laughs> Why do people think Trump would quit of all the people who want the attention? Yeah. Like Trump would be the last person that would walk away. Uh, do you think there's any, uh, that there was any Russian collusion uh, in the, like direct Trump-Russian collusion? I'm not a big conspiracy person. I'm, I'm of the belief that I don't think there was any direct collusion is my belief uh, in the way that people think that there was a quid pro quo type of thing. Well, let's go through what, what, is, what we know and what we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that um, Russia has interfered with elections yes. through the democratic world since at least 2014. Right. Uh, in some cases, very blatantly. Like in France, they actually made literally loans to the National Front. Mm-hmm. They did that in the Czech Republic. They, did, they made loans to the party, the pro-Russian party, um, and elected, and then now have re-elected the president of the Czech Republic. And with technology, it just gets easier and easier. Right? And, yeah. and here, so here in the United States, they, and, and this game of, of penet- piercing email systems and getting information, mm-hmm. they've done that, they've done that in Poland, they've done that in a lot of places. So it's a fact that the Russians got Democratic Party emails. They oh, definitely. Also, yeah. They also got Republican Party emails, but they never used those. Right. It's a fact that through WikiLeaks, which is more or less a Russian cutout, mm-hmm. um, and increasingly a Russian cutout, they published those. Um, and, that they dis- and they distributed them in ways and at a t- and times to do as much damage to the Democratic Party candidate and as much help to the Republicans as possible. Mm-hmm. They did this at the congressional as well as the presidential level. So those are just on the record. Right. We know that they... And there re- was direct communication with someone from WikiLeaks. Roger Stone... Right. Roger Stone, definitely. Would, ha- was very, would very accurately say two or three days before WikiLeaks dumped sure. that one is coming. Um, we know that they reached out to um, the Trump family and that Donald Trump, in writing an email, enthusiastically accepted an email, uh, a meeting to discuss... Right negative information about Hillary Clinton. Um, so Adoptions. So that's, well, adoptions means we, what we want I'm is you to- I'm adopting your policy, Mr. Bishop. We want you to drop the, you know, end the Magnitsky Act sanctions. So the, the great mystery, so those, I mean, that already you have the makings of one of the biggest scandals in American history. Mm. The great mystery, the thing that is not known, is to what extent do the Trump people communicate back to Russia? Mm-hmm. The Russian Facebook ads, which were seen by more people than who cast a ballot, th- those ads were very intelligently placed. Now, maybe they figured it out on their own. It's not that hard. Um, but right. maybe somebody gave them some guidance. Yeah, if our, if our aunts and uncles can figure that out <laughs> and spread these things around. It's almost too easy for someone to tamper with our elections, it seems, especially after this last one. Um, it's pretty easy, and nothing has been done. And this mm-hmm. is one of the really amazing things about the events of the past week. Um, the head of the CIA said the Russians are going to try again, um, mm-hmm. and nothing is being done. The Republicans and aren't interested in this. They, they, the congressional Republicans. Which is shocking. This is so different from any Republican yeah. behavior in the history of Republicanism well, for, probably up to this moment. For right? me, this, is, this is, has been, for me a, this has been yeah. a real make or break issue because you know, I'm a foreign policy hawk. I believe sure. in an American-led world order. And I've been you know, following with horror the, the, the breaking of our hopes for a better Russia in the 1990s and, uh-huh. and the emergence of, of Putin. Uh-huh. What is, um, well, how does the Republican Party square itself with that position that they're taking? Well, I, I mean, is the leadership going to break down? Are we going to see that, I mean, people like McConnell and those people just going away? Or are they going to be replaced by 
it a new party? I, I think we're heading for a period of real political convulsion. And I, 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 don't, I don't want to end this conversation without talking about the, reason, the many reasons there are for real hope. Talk you know? about whatever you want. But, but before we get to the real hope, I have to go with the natural Let's bend of my and mind. Change it. Yeah. Is, is for the reasons to be ominous. I, mm -hmm. I think we are heading to a much more immediate crisis because um, the evidence is going to be the evidence is going to be bad. Whatever um, that what we know already is bad, and mm -hmm. there may be things coming that are worse. The predicates are being set. That's what this Nunes brochure or scribble or whatever it is. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm feeling, uh, just for the people listening, we're, we're recording this like hours before. Like I think it's going to be released tomorrow, this memo. Yes. I have a feeling it's going to be like a disappearing ink, you know? <laughs> like, it's, we'll it's, be able to see it for like 10 hours or something. It's, it's, not, it's, gone. it's not meant... It's not meant to impress anybody mm -hmm. who knows anything. The Republicans are backing away from this, by the way. It seems like, have you noticed this in the last, like, yeah, yeah. in the last, well, it's probably not, people shouldn't make such a big deal out of what they're going to say. It's just here. an effort to create a justification for ignoring what the FBI is finding. Mm -hmm. And, but here's what we're setting up, and here's, here's the thing I worry is coming. Uh, the... When the Trump people say collusion is not a crime, mm -hmm. as increasingly they do, they are not wrong. I mean, it is a crime to hack communications. That's criminal. And there are a whole lot of election laws governing receiving things of value from foreign parties. And there are all kinds of foreign registration laws. There are a series of technical statutes mm -hmm. that people around Trump may have tripped over. But the core offense of, of come into my office, Mr. KGB man, FSB man, <laughs> And let's talk about how we can work together to elect me. Uh, I've put this question to lots and lots of people who served in very important legal positions in the US government. How is that illegal? And the, the answer most of them come to is that the, the if they don't trip over these technical statutes about foreign registration and um, election law, it's not illegal. Of course, you can do that. I mean, no one ever would. No one ever did. It's shocking. It's, it's unpatriotic, it's un-American, it's anti-democratic, but it's not illegal. So it what sounds I, like a very OJ defense team rationalization. <laughs> but here's, here's where we may be. So it may be that in some months, um, Special Counsel Mueller reports that you know, he's indicted a bunch of people for these technical violations mm -hmm. of election law statutes and, and other things, um, but he stopped at a certain level, and then maybe he gives a report about what happens, and the report says what happens and he says, but there's, I, I don't find prosecutable offenses uh -huh. here. And at that point, we have a gigantic national political, it's a political matter, you may say. At that point, you have a national political convulsion about is this acceptable or not? And there will be people who say, um, well, no laws were broken, so yes, it may be unfortunate, it may be irregular. Um, I mean, Brit Hume had some, had some version of this. And it may be unfortunate or inappropriate, but if it's not illegal, what's the issue? Uh, and that sets the way for a particularly vicious political battle. So they're pretty much making it the Stormy Daniels of issues. Like, well, it wasn't illegal, sleeping with the porn stars. Right. And nobody cares about morality anymore, so... <laughs> So what's the point? You know, do you think this whole memo thing is just a big distraction 
Like, is, is Trump a Manchurian candidate? Yeah. Is, there, is there something else going on that we can't see? I always well, feel like these things are distractions. Like, there's some action that's happening well, that the, this thing is distracting us from. Well, the, the, the action that happens all the time is the flow of money. I mean, Donald Trump right now is, I mean, he's operating an active business as mm-hmm. president of the yeah, United States. Yeah, you talk about this in the book as well, yeah. yeah it's inc- I mean, Lyndon, it Lyndon really Johnson, is blatant, too. It's really it? blatant. Yeah. And, he, and he's receiving, and his business, unlike Lyndon Johnson, continued to run his radio stations in Texas <laughs> while he was president, and right. he shouldn't have done that, but... But, but come on, you'd love to see have Lyndon Johnson do a radio show. <laughs> I think it was a top 40 format. Yeah. It, wasn't, it, was on, it wasn't anything interesting. Right. Um, but... Trump is, has an international business. His business is licensing his name mm-hmm. to, I mean, Trump was a big deal in New York in the 80s, and then his company went bust, and he said, well, I can't be big in New York, or can't, but I'll be big in Baku. Um, and in Azerbaijan, and the UAE, and India, and any place where they like a lot of gilding on their palaces. Uh, <laughs> right, gold, gold is their jam. Right. Yeah. Yeah, he's, the, he's like the restoration hardware of, of Baku. <laughs> Um, and he has towers there yeah. and business partners, and they write him checks. Uh, he, gets a che- he gets a check from the Philippines. He gets a check from Turkey. He gets a check from the United Arab Emirates. He gets a check from India. Uh, and those, I mean, not from the governments of those countries, from business partners, but they in turn are subject to pressure from their governments. And none of this, we don't know how much. We don't know if it's a dollar amount or a percentage amount. We don't know how important it is to his income. Is it 5% or mm-hmm. 10 or 30 or 60? Um, and uh, that's the thing that he has his eye on, I think, mm-hmm. every day at work. And do you think, so is that Trump's ultimate thing is to increase like his holdings and his name and that sort of thing to get as much money out of this as possible? Or do you think it is to dismantle, I mean, you talk about almost the dismantling of governance itself. With, uh, I mean, part of Trumpocracy is that theory, right? I I don't think he he cares enough about government to set out to dismantle it as an end in itself. But there are all these, the the United States government is set up to catch somebody like this, to keep him out of power Mm -hmm. and to prevent these commercial activities. So in self-preservation, he has to shut down the U.S. government because if if it continues to activate, Mm -hmm. sooner or later, it will discern his activities, discover his activities, and he will be in some kind of trouble. So he, he's turning off the burglar alarms, and out of his pure desire for dominance, he cannot accept any restraint on his power, even when it's not directly, even when you, even the smarter thing may be to sort of smooth it over rather uh-huh. than to confront it. It's when you, even when you say those things, it's hard to imagine that he could even spend another hour in the White House, and it's just accepted. Like Ronald Reagan was, we was called the uh, Teflon president. Remember, they said yeah. if uh, if Reagan went through a car wash with with the top down, Jimmy Carter would get wet, right? <laughs> that, that was a joke, right? That was about Reagan. But with me, like with <laughs> Trump, to me, is like Terminator Two. You know, I mean, he. It, Anything that would completely destroy anyone else, for him, just that liquid orange uh, alloy just reforms, and he's like, okay, and nobody cares. Why is it, how does that happen? How come no one actually cares? Like this whole Stormy yeah. Daniels thing, I made a joke about it, yeah. but that would bring, could you imagine if that had happened to Obama? <laughs> right? I mean, I can't imagine that he would be unaffected by it, his presidency. 
What if Obama did it twice a day in different ways and did it for a year? What, be with the porn star? <laughs> did some, the, the thing is, that what Trump does is... Yeah, it's the volume. It's the volume. I mean, one of the questions I get asked about the book is, is there anything new in it? And my answer is, um, is it will seem new. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because you've forgotten it. Your book should only be on Kindle so it can be updated every time, every time you read it. I don't remember this chapter. Uh, so people just don't care at the end of the day? They're exhausted. Look, a lot of people care. You all care, right? Yeah. Uh, but, but you're, you're exhausted, you're exhausted too, right? And, it is exhausting, yeah. And you're a little disheartened. So here, I want to talk here maybe a little bit about why you should not be like me, and, and you should not let pessimism. Uh, I, I, or as I said, the motto I use is you should, you should think like a pessimist, but uh -huh. act like an optimist. Okay. Uh, and and here's, here, what is going on is I think people do care. Okay. Uh, and one of the things that is very striking is 2014 had the lowest voter turnout of any election since 1942, when millions of American young men were overseas. 2016, very listless, unemotional election that um, where a, a lot of the real emotional energy of the Democratic Party seemed to be turning on its own mm -hmm. candidate. Um, and on the Republican side, there was a kind of resignation to Trump, you know, lesser evil. It, it, was, these were, it was a low emotion election. Mm -hmm. But 2017 was a high emotion year. And you saw, but, and not I, something I worried about at the beginning, destructive emotion, a lot of like uh, 1960s style protests. Mm -hmm. But the most legal, orderly, and patriotic protests I think you've ever seen. I mean, the, the first Women's March in Washington in January uh, 2017, there was not a single arrest. Uh, when the police said, don't walk on the flower beds, they didn't walk on the flower beds. Um, and that's not to everybody's taste, but it's the way to do it. Uh, and what you see is this, this, along with the level of civil engagement, this level of demand for knowledge. Everyone who is in my line of work in the media feels your readers are not only reading you more, but they're reading you differently. They're reading you, it's not just, you know, elegant gossip about Washington, uh -huh. that people feel a sense of urgency about it. Uh, I think you see sort of, you know, Trump has given us, um, there are some gifts to him, a, a wider vision. You know, the, the opioid crisis really was not seen in 2015. Uh, it was barely seen. As a political issue, you mean? Well, I, 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 I uh, do a survey in the book where I sort of punch into the New York Times, um, that the thing that allows you to search for words. For, I did for the calendar year 2016. I entered the word opioid and the word transgender. And I don't want to belittle anything that anybody's going through, but it is striking that there were six times as many mentions of transgender issues in the New York Times in 2016 as there were of the opioid crisis that was claiming tens of thousands of lives. So it wasn't just the, po the political elite didn't see it, because the social elite didn't see it, because it wasn't touching uh -huh. us. Um, I, there, I, so I think that Trump has given us a, a wider vision. He's done something else that I think is really important. Um, the phrase post-truth uh -huh. began as a compliment. It begins in the academy, 
begins among advanced kinds of um, philo philo uh, philosophers who want to say that truth is a construct, uh, truth, there, there is not one truth, we don't want to impose some, but one person's truth on another, different people have different experiences and therefore different truths, and the, we should replace the concept of truth with the concept of truths. Oprah paid homage to this in her speech at the Golden Globes when she referred to your truth and your truth. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that Donald Trump has shown us is the opposite of truth is not truths, the opposite of truth is lying. And democracy can't take it because you rely, you, you know, here you are 3,000 miles from Washington, you rely on flows of information to know how do I cast my vote in line with my interests and my values. Okay. And if you're systematically deceived, your vote becomes useless. And he's made us, he's confronted us with the, both the fragility and the preciousness yeah. of truth. I, I just slightly have a disagreement because I think politicians have always lied, you know, but I think people knew what the game was. They knew the type of lie. You know, I mean, Caesar was stabbed on the Senate floor. I mean, politicians have always had, there's always been darkness around, you know. But um, do you think, let me ask you this question, and it's interesting because when you brought up transgender and opioid crisis, and I think part of what's happening in the country, my observation on this is somehow those are, and I know, and I know this was not your intention, you know, but somehow those are put up against each other as if they're in competition, you know, or as if, one has anything to do with the other, as if they should be pitted against each other in some kind of... I just mean, what do we, what no, no, I know we you see it, and what do we not but, see? But it's, it's some, time, some type of cultural competition. And I think that's what's going on out there right now, this, this uh, kind of people holding on to what they think the culture is and using things to vote against even more so than a vote for, it seems like. But the decline in life expectancy that has affected the non-college part of the population. Uh -huh. That's something, it's, it's hard to, to, I mean, you know, for the parts of America that are working, uh -huh. um, people are living longer and healthier. I mean, look at, the, look at the Democratic primary field, whose motto seems to be 90 is the new 70. <laughs> uh, uh, it's just, I mean, really, the idea that you have 75-year-olds thinking, yeah, three years I may run for president. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but and that's an enormous blessing. But meanwhile, there are huge parts of America mm -hmm. where people are living less long than they did 20 years ago. And yeah. that, that has never happened in peacetime mm -hmm. in any developed country. It didn't happen here during the Great Depression. Uh, it didn't happen in Ger when Germany when people were starving during the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. It didn't happen there. I mean, the only places it's happened are in non-college America and in the post-Soviet post republics. What do you think is the biggest cause? Uh, there's, there, it's, Can you blame it on technology? You, the, the phrase that is used and I, is deaths of despair. Mm -hmm. Drugs, obesity, but mm -hmm. things like um, Americans have the lowest seatbelt use of any developed country. Um, well, all that fat, you know. Kind of, <laughs> um, I'm not fat shaming you guys. I'm talking about driving. I'm driving shaming. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the gun accidents. Mm. Um, you know, that you, you read about these stories all uh, and there's somehow that... You well, know, some the, of those aren't accidents. The, the hot, mm. But, you know, there's something, I mean, I don't want to, like, again, as you, you don't compare, but there's something mm -hmm. kind of made extra horrifying mm -hmm. about the story of people who are playing with weapons and kill their children mm -hmm. um, because they're not attached enough to life to put the thing, you know, put the thing away. Um, and all of those things, accidents of all kinds, uh, the, the, the way they, the eating, the drinking, the drugs, the seatbelts, mm -hmm. it all adds up to people who are not 
I mean, all the things that I'm sure every person in this room does because you want to, you, you have a vision of a future. You, the, the tomorrow is going to be better. There, uh -huh. there are people you love. You, you, uh, there's a reason to be here. Um, and then we also have this, you know, problem of a country in which more and more people live alone, and in which, you know, when you ask questions like, "I feel I have a lot of close friends," non-college Americans are just on a toboggan slide where every year fewer and fewer of them report having close friends. Uh -huh. And, and the, the number of Americans who get through, again, there are surveys on this, who, who say, did you leave your house in the last 12 hours? We're, we got a, we're a rising trend of Americans who say, I've never left my house. And, okay, and some of them are teenagers who are like wrapped up in Call of Duty. But, but, but a lot of them are people who, because of some kind of physical impairment or depression, and there's just more of this. Yeah. And it's killing people. Yeah, the physical health and the mental health is really a huge problem. I know you don't want to end on that down note before we take questions. Give me some hope. Uh, Give me the, that hope. Okay, the, hope. the hope starts in this room. Uh, the hope starts with the fact that you're here. Um, everyone has more options as to how to use time than any human beings have ever had. Um, and the rise in civic-mindedness. Mm -hmm. um, I think there is, there, there is hope. I think we are also seeing some of the excesses of American life being tampered a little bit. I mean, I, I strongly suspect that if I were in this hall four years ago and tried to persuade you that Julian Assange and Edward Snowden were not heroes, I would not get a very hospitable hearing. Um, but I think people can see that now. Uh -huh. And I think there are people in, and if I were in Germany or France four years ago and I talked about what happens if America recedes from world leadership. Yeah. I don't know that I would always get a hospitable hearing, but if you talk to them about it now and they have to confront what that world looks like, you get a different hearing. And on, on the political right, I think one of the things that, one of the things that define, that sort of this part of the psychology of the political right is we're very quick to accept the unfairnesses of life as just the ordinary bumps in the road, mm -hmm. you know? Life, who said life is fair? Um, and what Trump does is he, takes all of those petty cruelties uh -huh. that, it's not a big deal, the microaggressions, uh -huh. and magnifies them into one big 24-hour-long tweeted macroaggression. <laughs> and, and he says, yeah. look at this. How do you feel about it? And I don't want to be overly idealistic with this. I mean, the Romans built the Colosseum and kept it filled twice a week, every day for 400 years, by offering people the spectacle of men hacking each other to death, and it, it sold out. I mean, people, there is a huge human appetite for cruelty, yeah. but there is also a human revulsion from cruelty and confronting it, and I think we are seeing a lot of that, just the, conf the confrontation. And this is, I, I think this is one of the reasons why the reaction to Trump has been led by women, that um, they hate, they see the cruelty, they see it faster, and they hate it more. Mm -hmm. Although a majority of women vote for Trump. <laughs> Black women say vote very white women. The majority of white women vote for Trump. Okay, let's take uh, some of your questions for David. A short-term crisis question about Rosenstein and what's going on with this memo. Could he be fired over the weekend and Trump do something like a recess appointment because they're out? Good is that a concern? Is that his evil plan? I, I, I am so concerned about that. I, I, I share you, that does look like a very plausible scenario. Um, and this is on. That looks like a very plausible scenario. Something really, really 
to worry about. And uh, this would be a good time for him to do it from his point of view, because his party, the, the point of the memo is to unite his party, to give it a plausibility where, um, that it might not have had six months ago. And as they get closer to the election, they might get panicky. Uh, yes, who's next? Over here? Thanks. Um, in some of your writing, you once said a lot of what's going on in the Tea Party or with Trump, it's almost like a going out of business sale for the baby boomers. Yes. For the baby boomers? Yes, oh, and as great. a millennial, can you elaborate what you meant by that and what's that going to mean for my generation? <laughs> so, thank you for your good memory. Um, <laughs> what, here's what I meant by that. that the, the Tea Party of 2009 was often described by, by journalists as um, a reaction against debts and deficits. But when you, when you saw it close up, it was a movement in defense of Medicare. And when you, when you combine that with what the polls showed you about the attitudes of people uh, then in their 60s, that what you saw was they, had a, they were involving a new kind of conservatism that uh, insisted that on the total defense of Medicare, that said that America was not doing enough to protect the interests of older people. But at the same time, they're willing to um, do almost anything to all the rest of the activities of the state in order to protect their program. And, and so I was struck by how do you explain what was happening to the politics of the boomers who in those years immediately after the recession struck became very much more conservative. They convert the, the the politics of the people who were born in the 15 years after World War II converged on the, to, to that point, much more conservative politics of the people born between 1930 and 1945. And so I, I, what it looked to me what they were doing was they were coming up with the politics of generational self-defense, protect our programs at the expense of the future. And as, as I said, this isn't conservatism, it's a going out of business sale for the baby boom generation. Great. Hi, um, I'm one of your, it's over to your, to your right. Okay. Well, I, I'm one of the people who is reading you more and reading everyone more and, uh, and, and soaking it up. But given that your book is not an endorsement of Trump and it's a, it's a kind of a cautionary tale and that his supporters, you say, are out of touch and the, the, the dimmer, the democracy dimmer is going down, why is it important to, to have us read you? And aren't you frustrated as a, as a writer um, about not getting the message across to the people who need that message most, who aren't being served by Trump, Trumpocracy. Is it a preaching to the choir? Um, probably tonight, yes. <laughs> uh, but I, I was in Louisville, Kentucky uh, yesterday, talking to uh, actually a bigger audience than tonight. Uh -huh. um, and, no disrespect, um, uh, the... I have so many Kentucky jokes I can do right now. <laughs> uh, but here's a, there's a lot of um, focus on this fabled Trump base. And the question is often asked, what would it take to change the minds of the Trump base? But politicians don't lose by losing their base. That's why it's called the base. Uh, they lose because uh, things change because the, um, the next layer are peeled away and the layer after that. And so what, you, what I hope I'm doing is talking to, I mean, I, I, just before the election, I, this is a total tale of school, we had a very, um, we had a little gathering at my house and I was uh, 
talking to some friends who are very, there was one very prophetic friend who very, even more pessimistic than me, who was saying, that's it, Trump's going to win. And I was assuring him, and my wife constantly reminds <laughs> me of this. No, no, all those women in the Philadelphia suburbs who own cookware with French words on them, <laughs> they're going to save you. And, and they didn't in 2016, but they, they are the, 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 the soft Republicans, uh, the people who, who voted for Mitt Romney and had trouble with Trump. That, that's, that's where it comes away. I, I tell the story in the book of what happened in the state of Pennsylvania in 2016. There were two statewide elections that year, um, one for president, one for U.S. Senator. Uh, the U.S. Senator was an incumbent, a man named Pat Toomey, very conventional Republican of the Pat Ryan, Paul Ryan type, past president of the Club for Growth. Both Trump and Toomey got almost exactly the same number of votes, about 1.2 million. But Toomey ran 200,000 votes ahead of Trump in the Philadelphia suburbs and 200,000 votes behind him in the rest of the state. So what you can see there is that there are two Republican parties that substantially overlap, but that also substantially diverge. And places like those Philadelphia suburbs, um, where the people voted for Toomey and not for Trump, if a few tens of thousands more people had made that same decision. Uh, the politics of the United States would look very different, and that can still happen in the future. Everything that we're talking about is a future that is in our hands. The future is not something to predict, because the future, you can only predict the future if the future already exists, and you can see it. It doesn't, the future is the product of people's choices. But David, I'll go back to the point I was making earlier, I mean, because it's, you're talking about Pennsylvania, to go back to the Kentucky, right? Um, but if, people, if the economy is doing better and people aren't watching the news every day and keeping up with all these things, that, these horrible things, whatever that Trump is doing, which is more becoming just cult of personality and people, as we say, are getting exhausted by it. But if, they, if the economy is doing well, as the Clinton said, is the economy stupid and they're judging by their pocketbooks, is any of this going to matter? Everything can matter. Um, and, and, and then this is where people in this room do become very, very important. Um, to, because, uh, to the, the politics of the future. Because elections are always about choices in a two-party system, and so long as the United States has an electoral college and a first-past-the-post system for Congress, it will be a two-party system. Um, everything is a matter of more or less. And a lot of the choices, a lot of what happens in the future depend on the choices that Democrats make. And there has been a tendency for Democrats who were disappointed by the pace of change in the Obama years to pursue messianic candidates. Um, and they have made choices that make them more excited, but less electable. Uh, and the, the shape, the future shape of your party, or the party I assume that most of the people in the room probably sympathize with, uh, whether it makes responsible choices or emotional choices is going to determine a lot of the shape of the future. And that's a, that's a heavy responsibility. I mean, this government shutdown that happened, uh, I, I think the Democrats just walked into a trap on this. I think the Republicans completely won this one. The Democrats shut down the government, which is always a, a foolish thing to do, um, and a wrong thing to do, by the way. It's just not the way the game should be played. But they shut it down over two issues, children's health insurance program and the status of uh, the DACA population. The, um, People came to the country illegally as minors and who are now uh, adults. Yes, yeah, you're in California. You don't have to okay. explain that. <laughs> so here's what. So they. This ain't Kentucky. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, don't want to take anything for granted. But all right, thank you. Uh, so two issues. 
The Republicans almost instantly yielded on the first, uh, taking that issue off the table. And so the shutdown, and it happened on a weekend, so there was not a lot of chance for the Democrats to um, change their footing. The result was that the Democrats were seen to shut down the government over the status of a population who were in the country illegally. And that is exactly the image that Republicans wanted to affect Senate contests in red states. Mm -hmm. But they had a very clear goal, lure, Cla lure Claire McCaskill into mm -hmm. something that is going to Yeah, a very cynical her. game, right. It was a cynical game. Mm -hmm. But you know what? When somebody lays a trap for you, you don't have to walk in. Mm -hmm. Here's All right, time for two more questions. But there's so um, many people with over here. So, David, you've written really articulately about Trump as an authoritarian personality. Um, the rest of the world has had authoritarian rule, Western Europe, Asia, Africa, South America. It's never happened in America. There's never been an, a successful authoritarian. Yeah character. We've had near misses during the Great Depression with Huey P. Long in the 50s with Joe McCarthy. So my question is, why now? Is it something unique to Trump and his media propaganda mastery? Is it something about the sense of despair in the country? Is it something about the weakness in ineffectualness of his opponents, both in the Republican Party and the eventual Democratic candidate. Where do you think it came from? I think that at the deepest level, here's the cause. Um, I cite in the book a, a study by a German political scientist named Yasha Monk, who asked this question to people in half a dozen, or a dozen different developed countries. Is it essential to live in a democracy? If you ask that question to people who were born in the 1930s, uh, in, not, and in the United States, and Sweden, and Germany, and Britain, and Canada, about 90% say yes, it is essential to live in a democracy. The number who answer that question, yes, it is essential, declines with every 10-year cohort. And among people who are un under 30, about 25% say yes, it is essential. Do they understand the question? Well, that's, that's a great point. That's yeah. a great point. Maybe they don't understand the question. So to back it up, Monk gave them so, some alternatives. Mm -hmm. Would you like to see a strong leader who can cut through red tape and ordinary laws? Would you favor rule by the army instead of by politicians? And again, among people under 30, it's, it's a minority who say yes, but it is a significant minority, whereas among people who are um, older, it is, an it is an insignificant minority. Uh -huh. So something is happening where there is over time a progressive loss of faith in the democratic idea. That's the backdrop. Do you think, do you think part of it has to do, Bush, Obama, and now Trump have all kind of, while we've been sleeping, uh, used executive action, and with the complicity of Congress too, with their non-ability to work together, almost forcing this action in some ways, where we've handed over a lot of control to, to the executive. I branch. think there's a lot to that, mm -hmm. but I think when you have a phenomenon... Where when they do something we like, we just don't care, is what I'm saying. But when you have yeah. a phenomenon that is true, as true in Sweden as in the United States, you can't have an America-only explanation. Something bigger is going on across the democratic world. And I think that something is, first, the fading of the memories of the war, that you can imagine that the alternative to democratic rule is... It, fill in your charismatic hero here, right. rather than oppression and conflict. Um, and I think it's 
the fact that after the war, democracy not only delivered freedom, but it delivered the goods. You didn't just get to live in freedom and dignity, you also got a refrigerator and a car and paid holiday, um, and that seemed pretty good. When democracy stops give, delivering the goods, a lot of people say, well, I appreciate the freedom and dignity, but um, <laughs> that's a good start. And the refrigerator, thank But you where's my much. refrigerator? Or the, you know, 20, my, you know, robot espresso maker. Um, so I, th I think there's something big going on throughout, throughout the world. And what, one of the things I think we, we talked about, what, what can we do? Because that's a question. One of the things I think we all need to develop is a new appreciation for the value of moderate, slow, incremental change. And a quote here, a person of the left, uh, the great American socialist Eugene Victor Debs, who said, at a, who's, I mean, he was a, who was a hugely charismatic figure with a huge following, but he said once to a gathering of people who were just hanging on his every word, I would not lead you to the promised land even if I could, because if I could lead you in, someone else could lead you out. David, thank you so much for your book. It really is fantastic. It really is good. David from Trumpocracy. Get this book, you guys.